0: This is Suno India Production. You can now listen to all our episodes on our Android and iPhone app. Download it now.
1: Increasingly, it feels like our parliament is a battlefield and not a place where elected members debate the state of the country. It's the big story of the day today. A total of 92 opposition members of parliament have been suspended from parliament, 11 more Sabha MPs have now been suspended. This is the largest number of opposition MPs that have ever been suspended in the last decade or more.
0: India's parliament has seen heated protests after a record 141 opposition MPs were suspended from both chambers in the past week. They've been accused of disrupting proceedings as they demand a debate on the major security lapse that occurred at the legislature Last week.
1: Now, while the MPs were suspended, the Parliament passed laws completely appending the major criminal laws of the country. But what does this mean in a democracy? Experts have repeatedly pointed out that if there is one democratic institution which is gasping for reform, it is the Parliament, whose functioning has been severely undermined in the recent years. Hi, I'm Sneha Deshara, and this is the Suno India Show. On the eve of the last Parliament session of the current government. Mansi Verma, a lawyer and public policy researcher, posted a thread on the platform X, formerly Twitter, about the wrongs committed by the government during the term. The list of wrongs mentioned in this thread is glaring enough to make any concerned citizen worry. For this episode, I spoke to Mansi, who is also the founder of Madhyam, which is a civic engagement initiative working to bring parliament and policymaking closer to people. Through so a tweet, few days back, Mansi had recently flagged some alarming trends regarding the functioning of the Indian parliament. Uh, among other things, she has written about how, shockingly, there's a less number of parliament sittings between uh, 2014 and 2021. Uh, Mansi, you talked about fewer and shorter parliament sittings. Uh, why do you think this is happening and has it happened before? Have we seen this before? How does this affect the parliament's job of, uh, you know, holding the government uh, responsible and accountable? Uh, Thanks, Neha. Thanks for having me over. It's very important
0: that we are having this conversation, uh, particularly in this year where we are heading into the elections. And I hope that uh, people do pay attention to what has happened in parliament in the last uh, 10 years when they go out to vote. Uh, And it is a consideration that they pay attention to. So, so while this is not a new thing that has happened, uh, successively it has happened over the decades since independence that the number of parliament sittings have come down. So in the initial years of uh, our independence, when the first Lok Sabha was formed in 1952, in the initial couple of decades, we did have an average of 120 days uh, of session of parliament in a year. Now that has come down to about... In, if if we speak about the current Lok Sabha, which is the seventeenth Lok Sabha, which started in two thousand nineteen, um, and uh, this is uh, and if we compare it to other Lok Sabhas, which completed their full five five year terms in the last 20-25 years, each government has managed to complete their full term. If we if we look at that, we see that uh, earlier the two thousand fourteen to two thousand nineteen session had the shortest, the fewest numbers of sitting. And now the 2019 to 2024, the 17th Lok Sabha has had only about, and if we include, if I add to it, the current session, which is going on, it has had about 278 days um, that the parliament has been in session, which averages to about 56 days in a year. So so one is that, of course, the government has tried to evade uh, politically uh, the accountability before parliament. But there are certain structural um, reasons for this as well. So, so I think it is a really big irony that an institution which uh, constitutionally is given the responsibility to seek accountability from the government doesn't have the power to convene itself. So, it is only the government currently which has the power to decide when to call a parliament session. And if it is not convenient for the government to face parliament at a particular point of time, it will choose not to have the session or to delay the session. And I can give you several examples of that just from the last uh, 10 years. So for instance, in 2017, the winter session of uh, parliament uh, was delayed by a couple of weeks. But that year we had very crucial assembly elections in, in, uh, in the state of um, uh, Gujarat. And that became a reason for delaying and shortening the winter session. Then 2020, uh, COVID became an excuse uh, you know, for uh, keeping the parliament shut for most of the year. In that year, in fact, parliament was in session only for 33 days in a year. So despite the fact that the world over many democracies made an attempt to keep their parliament going by convening virtual sessions, remote sessions, etc., Nothing of that sort happened in India. And another structural issue, if I would uh, uh, point out here, it is also that uh, once the government is done with its agenda, so so the government approaches every parliament session with a set agenda, that these are the bills that we will place before parliament for debate, discussion, and for consideration and passing. Now, once the government is done with its agenda, it would uh, it would end the session ahead of the schedule. This has also happened multiple times. In 2020, for instance, again going back to the COVID year, budgets, uh, the monsoon session which was called was initially supposed to be for 18 days. Now, even an 18-day session after a six-month gap was a short session. Uh, but because the government managed to clear all the bills that it had listed for that uh, particular session, it ended the session eight days ahead of schedule. And this also happens because the government has alone has the power to decide when to convene a session, how long the session should be, whether to convene a session at all or not. Even right now, the the last session of the current government, which is going on right now, uh, it is a session which started on 31st of Jan- January. It will end on 9th of February. It's a very short eight-day session. This is the last uh, session of the current government, the last opportunity for... MPs, to question the government, seek accountability, to to raise any other issues of public importance that they had to raise.
1: Mansi explained that our laws can be subjected to judicial review. For example, uh, Section 377 of the Indian Penal Code, which criminalizes homosexuality, was read down as it was discriminatory. The Constitution is seen as a guidebook to judge laws in that respect. But as per Article 122, the court cannot inquire into the proceedings of the parliament. The law says that the validity of any proceedings in parliament shall not be called in question on the ground of any alleged irregularity of procedure.
0: There are several examples of this. You know, passing laws without giving MP sufficient time, uh, passing bills without giving MP sufficient time to even read through what's there in the bill. Uh, passing bills without adequate debate, uh, passing bills when there is protest or disruption that's happening in the House, passing bills in absence of entire opposition. So all of these are undemocratic ways of uh, passing bills. Uh, So now a dilemma that confronts us is whether something like this can be allowed because Article 122 says that irregularity of procedure of lawmaking cannot be questioned in the court of law. There is no settled jurisprudence on this. uh, different courts have uh, taken different stand on it. Uh, there are several petitions which have been filed, even very recently. The the criminal courts, for instance, the three criminal uh, laws which replaced the earlier criminal courts when they were challenged, Supreme Court. So one of the allegations which were made in the petition was that these bills were passed in an undemocratic manner because almost almost virtually the parliament was oppositionless at that time because of suspension, the mass suspension of MPs that happened so people have challenged the procedure through which bills have been passed before the court and it remains to be seen how courts approach these questions
1: so um, i will come to the question on deputy speaker you know you've written uh, in the tweet about how you know leaving uh, the post vacant for so long uh, it's a matter of concern so can you uh, explain that yeah so see article
0: 93 of the constitution is very clear it says that the house of people shall um uh elect um, uh, two presiding officers. So one is the speaker and the other is the deputy speaker. So we already have a speaker in place and it was and the speaker was immediately elected. Uh right, as soon as the 17th Lok Sabha was formed, the deputy speaker is supposed to perform the role of the speaker if the speaker is not available for any reasons. And it could be reasons ranging from illness to death to the speaker resigning, the the seat of the speaker having become uh, because of any other reason or the speaker has some other obligations that they have to attend to. Uh, conventionally also, you know, and now this is not given in the constitution, but this is how the convention has developed, that while the speaker is usually a nominee of the party in power, the deputy speaker is usually a nominee of the opposition. So the idea here is that there should be some kind of a power sharing arrangement between the government and the opposition for smooth functioning of the house because it is possible for the uh, opposition to say that since the speaker is the nominee of the political party so they are likely to be biased in their degrees. so to balance that you have a deputy speaker and both the speaker and the deputy speaker take turns presiding over the house so it sort of creates a balance also in terms of how the house is run now the argument that the government gives is that you don't really need a deputy speaker uh we have uh, we have uh we have created a panel of uh of MPs who can act or who can preside over a sitting if the speaker is not available, and this panel has MPs from all different political parties. Now, now this is some something that uh, the constitutional law, the constitution also provides for. But the constitution is very clear. The constitution says the first responsibility is of the speaker to preside over the sitting. If the speaker is not available, then you have the deputy speaker, and only if both are not available, then the house can frame some rules to appoint some other member to act as a presiding officer. So that can only happen if there is no speaker as well as no deputy speaker. So I think ultimately the message that goes from this is, you know, that the government, if the government doesn't want to uh, follow a particular mandate in the constitution, there is just no remedy available. There's just nothing that we can do about it. I do do remember that some time ago, somebody filed a petition in the Delhi High Court against this and the government uh, was also given a notice to respond to it. But I don't think anything has come out of that. We still don't have a deputy speaker.
1: Yeah, and also one more thing that keeps coming up again and again is people saying that, you know, the current government is being criticized for taking up a lot of uh, bills altogether in the parliament. In a very short span. You have also written about the productivity of the parliament sessions which is usually mistaken as in people think that passing a lot of bills uh, means that you know the parliament session is productive. But uh, I want to understand from you what do you think makes a session productive? So
0: you're absolutely right but you know let's also step back a bit. I think one is that the use of the word productivity to measure parliament's functioning I think is also not correct because it, you know, it sort of has a very commercialness undertone to it, which basically says that as long as you are able to get more done in less time, or you get more out of you know spending less, you're, you're getting a higher investment out of spending less, so you're doing you're being productive. You know, it almost sort of like guilts us into doing more, uh, you know, without an understanding. Uh, you know whether you know f- you know for instance where we say that it's the ends which justify the means. So as long as you are achieving that outcome, how you do it doesn't matter. So I don't really subscribe to the notion of uh, you know measuring whether parliament is working for us or not in terms of productivity. I think what's important for us to see for any any uh, you know citizen or any concerned in- individual is to see is whether parliament is functioning for them. So, according to me, how I would look at it, I would look at, you know, the following as metrics to judge whether my parliament is working for me. So, for instance, is the parliament being open and accessible? Do constituents have easy access to their MPs? Do they have easy access to what is happening in parliament? Uh, Whether it is inclusive. In one of the uh, past uh, sessions last year, we had an unfortunate incident where one member of parliament Made communal laws against another, uh, en- um, member of parliament. That will create a space where those from a particular community are able to, you know, get away with anything that they say, and others feel victimized
1: about. it. Is <laughs> to it is <laughs> <place to> <laughs>
0: If, if that is the kind of uh, functioning of parliament that we have, then we cannot say parliament is inclusive. Is parliament, is the functioning of a parliament transparent? So, for instance, are people able to watch what's happening in parliament in, a, in an objective manner? So, for instance, people, uh, there there has been uh, criticism that has been made against uh, Sansa TV, for instance, that uh, they only focus on what the government is saying or they only focus on what the uh, you know, uh, MPs from a particular political party are seeing, and they are not—they are not giving enough airtime to the opposition MPs. You know, their mics are getting switched off, or when they are speaking, the camera is focused elsewhere. Uh, if the if the opposition MPs are protesting, uh, that's not some something that is shown on Sunset TV, etc. So when these kind of things happen, then people are not able to get. Uh, you know, then Parliament is not being entirely transparent to people. Uh, are people able to get information that they want through parliament websites? So the Lok Sabha and the Rajya Sabha websites. Are they making all information about parliament's functioning uh, available in an open, accessible manner on their websites? You know, that's you know that's how we sort of judge how how well the parliament is functioning for us. So whether beyond legislative work also is parliament spending enough time on these non-legislative. But extremely crucial uh, debates or not, that's a measure of the, you know whether parliament is working for so me. And finally, you know we have the role of uh, lawmaking in there. You very rightly said that it's not just the number of bills that has been passed, but you know whether uh, these bills uh, how well were they scrutinized, how how deeply were they debated, were all different uh, points of view taken into consideration when that law was made, whether it was sent to a committee. Uh, Whether MPs got an opportunity to consult with different stakeholders to consult with their constituents before they were asked to debate on a particular bill. Uh, And I think here it's also important to remember bringing a particular bill is basically a, a political decision. And this is how the government also justifies it, right? That we made this promise in our manifesto when we went to people at the time of asking for vote. And that's what we are doing now. So we have brought this bill now. But why... A bill has been brought at a particular point of time, in a particular form, saying particular things is a political decision, right? As an example, I mean, there are a lot of examples that I can give. As an example, the government first proposed the Citizenship Amendment Bill in 2016. It could only be passed in 2019 in a slightly different form. The government first proposed the Personal Data Protection Bill in 2019. And then it went through a lot of changes and finally it would only be passed in 2023. So why that bill at that point of time? So all of these are very political decisions, right? And the government is bound to give justification for its decisions uh, before pandemic. So lawmaking cannot be that the government has the mandate, uh, the government was given this job by the people when they voted for them. So now any bill that they place before parliament is the best, uh, you know, uh, best, uh, possible uh, law that uh, uh, could have been made on that particular issue? What were the alternatives that were considered by the government when it decided to propose a particular bill uh, or a particular bill address particular issue? When all of these are decisions which are not as black or white as they seem, so we need debate to happen in parliament for us to understand why is the government bringing this bill now? What is in it for people? How will it help me? How, how might it harm me? So all of these things will only come out when debate happens in Parliament. So if Parliament is only you know ch- churning out bills one after the other without this debate, and then there is no other platform for this debate to happen, right? then the only option open to us is to go protest, as people did with respect to the farm bills, for instance, or CAA, for instance, or now there are protests happening against the criminal bills. So, to avoid that situation that happens afterwards also, it's important that debate happens in parliament. You see, that's why lawmaking is supposed to be a slow and deliberative process, providing for interventions at multiple stages, right? So, for instance, if a ministry proposes that a bill, you know, we, we require a law on a particular subject, right? Just let's take the data protection bill, for instance the entire debate for the data protection bill started when the government wrapped the government, uh, when the When Supreme Court wrapped the government uh, when the Aadhaar hearings were going on, uh, when the right to privacy hearings were going on, and they said that they, it's high time, India should have a data protection law. So the government was uh, then, you know, after that the government set up a BN Shri Krishna committee, uh, the committee invited comments from people. Then the committee prepared a draft of the bill. Then the committee submitted that draft to the government. That the government they introduced a bill in parliament. The bill was sent to a committee. Then that committee, a parliament committee, a joint parliament committee. Then the joint parliament committee did deliberations on it, invited comments from people. So why is all of this happening? Because while the government has proposed a bill, that bill will have very real consequences for us. So we should have an opportunity to you know to sort of Influence that bill and to participate in the policy making process. So, there is something called a pre legislative consultation policy. For instance, it was drafted in 2014. And while it is not mandatory as such, but this pre legislative consultation policy says that if the government is coming out with any proposed law, and it could e- even be rules and regulations, it needn't necessarily be a full fledged bill. Uh, even for that, the government should consult different stakeholders so these are the ways in which you check right so when consultations happen and the government comes to know that there is a lot of opposition for a particular uh, proposed bill the government may decide to redraft it or the government may decide to sit on it until it has until it is able to come up with a better alternative and that has also happened there have been instances of you know for instance where the government has taken back a particular decision or where the government has decided to redraft a particular thing after they received uh, comments um, the sending bills to standing committee also acts as a check because the standing committee also once it interacts with different stakeholders, invites different comments. It's able to propose to the government ways in which that particular bill can be improved. So all of these are different ways in which uh, you know the lawmaking process, uh, if it is being done rightly or not, that can be ensured. So while all of this, all of these procedures are in place. But if the government uh, wants to rush through with a particular thing, it can. And so it's it's for us to understand, you know, what we end up losing in the process when all of these different steps are not followed.
1: Because we are talking about the change, right? So I also want you to look back at uh, sessions during the previous governments because uh, we are talking about whatever happens post-2014, right? Uh, but what happened before that? Have we seen similar patterns before? Yes. So, see, this is not this isn't anything new as
0: such, but the intensity has become greater. So, in in the past also it has happened, and actually I think it is bad examples set in the past, which are used as precedents by the current government. So, for instance, in twenty nineteen. When the government brought the bill to reorganize the state of Jammu and Kashmir and the MP said that this is not the manner to do it. We haven't had a chance to look at the bill. The government justified it by saying, do you remember what you did when you were re- or reorganizing the state of Andhra Pradesh? At that time, MPs were thrown out of the house, the live deadly cast was stopped and the parliament doors were closed and that's how you passed that bill. So a wrong example was set. But the wrong examples now we used as a justification for doing further uh, wrongs, for committing further wrongs. So uh, similar, there have been instances in the past as when in the past, under the past governments as when, where bills have been passed without debate, amid protests, etc. So that is not a new thing. What is What we are seeing as new is, you know, for instance, as we just discussed at the very beginning, the current term of the Lok Sabha will have the shortest or the fewest number of sittings ever. So while it the trend started worsening, you know, a couple of decades ago, but now we have reached the lowest, the low point. And I think it's also important, uh, you know, to to also understand why this happens. So one we have already discussed, you know, shorter uh, sessions are being called. Another thing is that there is a complete breakdown of. Trust and relationship between the government and the opposition. There is uh, no understanding that basically, if the if for parliament to function smoothly, for for parliament to perform its own, it's important for both to rise up to the occasion and to and to fulfill their constitutional responsibilities. But uh, what we are seeing is both are trying to outwit each other. It also sort of becomes important for them to maintain this image that we are in control. You know, that we need we need um uh, uh business that we will get things done no matter what the opposition agrees to play by our rules fine if it doesn't we will still go ahead with what we want to do so that's why we are seeing the situation where uh, you know the government uh, uh, is is getting away with uh, pushing through a lot of bills in Parliament without adequate deliberation.
1: And you know, I think we should also talk about ordinances because you you have mentioned somewhat seventy six, which is a record number of ordinances being passed between uh, two thousand fourteen and two thousand twenty one. But uh, why do you think this is concerning? Uh, and why you think because it generally skips the usual process of making laws? Uh, you can you explain this uh, using few examples?
0: So see, uh, the ordinance-making power is given in the Constitution. We have Article 123 of the Constitution. and uh, But it's also important to see under what circumstances can Article 123 be used. So, so one, Article 123, says that ordinance can only be promulgated by the President if both houses of Parliament are not in session. So if Parliament is in session, the government, the usual lawmaking process is to bring your proposed bill before Parliament. Uh, And second, that there is an immediate need to bring to, to make a law on a particular issue, right? So so it's an emergency power. It's an extraordinary power. It cannot be used routinely. Constitution also says that if you do resort to it, it will only be for a limited period of time. So an ordinance uh, is only valid for six months after it is made. And within those six months, there are the, the government has either the option to re promulgate it before it expires at the end of six months, or if a parliament session happens within that time, the government has to place it before parliament for its approval or disapproval. So now what happens is that if parliament were to reject an ordinance, now it becomes a matter of prestige for the government as well, one. Second, it, it's also a matter of continuity that you made a law, for six months, that law was in force. Suddenly, now Parliament has said that this law will not exist anymore. So, it it can also create some kind of administrative issues as well. Then, it sort of becomes like a situation where if the government is feeling that it does not have sufficient uh, numbers in house to ensure that that ordinance is approved by Parliament, it will continue re it. And I will give you and I will give you a couple of examples for that. Otherwise, if it has sufficient uh, numbers, then it knows that ordinance will, will be approved by Parliament. So it sort of becomes something which in legal terminology is uh, called as a fate accompli. You know, that it's 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 a given that it will happen. So one of the examples, for instance, one of the first ordinances brought by this government as soon as it came to power in 2014 was the ordinance to amend the Land Acquisition Act, which was passed by the previous government in two thousand thirteen. And if you remember, uh, there were a lot of protests which happened as soon as that ordinance was uh, promulgated, because it exempted certain kinds of projects from following due process of land acquisition, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Eventually, the government was forced to refer it to a joint parliament committee, but and and because the government was not able to get it through parliament, it uh, re-promulgated that ordinance two more times. So it it tried to extend the life of that ordinance beyond the initial six months by keeping it alive through re promulgation. But eventually, it faced a lot of resistance that it had to drop it. Uh, there is another example of the farm laws, for instance. So, farm laws also originally brought us ordinances in June 2020. The entire country was in the uh, middle of the first wave of the pandemic. Now, that was a time when obviously people were you know, very busy with surviving. Uh, And that's the time when the government tried to bring these ordinances. So, you know, so it also becomes sort of like a way through which the government, in fact, uh, used an adversity to its advantage. So the government has used ordinances for a whole range of reasons which do not justify the original purpose for which this power was given.
1: I'm sure you have interactions with people or community or even youth uh, in general about how, what they think of the parliament and its proceedings. So how do you think the perception of the parliament has changed? Okay, so I
0: have repeatedly said this, that the, the way parliament is being conducted in the last few years, it has become redundant in people's imagination. It basically means that we can do without it. You know, I mean, it doesn't really affect the existence or of non-existence of a particular thing doesn't really affect us. So what happened when uh, uh, in twenty twenty was that uh, you know when the government announced lockdown, uh, and then it was extended for a couple of months. Parliament remained shut for all those you know for almost six months. Uh, now this was also a time uh, when in a lot of other countries it was realized that. Uh, the pandemic is being used as an opportunity by the government to expand its powers. So, for instance, several governments, including in our country, they launched a lot of these ways to surveil people in the name of contact tracing. So, we also had, for instance, the rokc Setu app, etc., which was brought. Um, and there were a lot of other emergency measures which were being taken uh, by the government, through which the government amassed a lot of powers in its hands. And a lot of these were unsupervised, unchecked powers. So in a lot of other democracies, it was realized that the government cannot be left unsupervised in this situation. And so even though in several other countries, parliaments are also physically not convening, but several other countries made arrangements for virtual and remote parliament sessions to happen. Uh, And the idea there was that, uh, you know, the, the parliament is the forum through which uh, to whom to, to the government is responsible for the steps it is being taken, the steps it is uh, taking to ensure welfare and relief measures are made available to people, the steps it is taking to provide health in, in infrastructure to de- deal with COVID, etc. So, um, so that is what was happening in the rest of the world. What was happening in India was that Parliament basically remained shut, and this is despite several demands which came from the opposition MPs as well. Um, and that a parliament sh- uh, a session should be convened. So so what we see here is that basically in our imagination, while we are dealing with the pandemic, the one institution that is constitutionally responsible to keep a check on the government, other than the Supreme Court, of course, a lot of people went to the Supreme Court when the entire migrant exodus happened, etc. So other than the Supreme Court, the parliament is the primary institution to keep a check on the government. It was completely missing in action. As per the government, as long as the government is doing what it's supposed to do, why do you need power? Why do you need parliament to question? Why do you need parliament to uh, seek accountability from, from the government? If parliament has no role to play, then that's how it in people's imagination it becomes redundant. Second is that because of the way parliament has been functioning, shorter sessions, lot of disruptions, bills being passed without debate, increasingly people are feeling that it is failing to perform its role. Uh, so no no real work happens in Parliament. It's just become a space for uh, you know for the opposition to disrupt and to raise a lot of these issues which have no meaning. If parliament is allowed to be taken over, taken for stage by the opposition and their uh, different tactics. Um so so that's how in people's imagination that's how they look at parliament, that it's just a space for the opposition to create even noise. And the actual work basically happens outside, not inside. And so therefore, uh, you know, why do we why do we even need um So and if if what the government is doing is basically fulfilling the formality of placing bills before parliament for it to rubber stamp it, that's enough. You know, that's how you sort of um, you know, uh create this. Imagination—that that's what we need a parliament for. And of course, then the government sort of always brings up this question of mandate. You know that we we have been given this mandate. We came with a uh, majority, so what we are doing is is the right thing to do. And uh, the parliament should not come in our way. Parliament should uh, you know support us in doing all the good work that we want to do for the people and not come in our way. So so when you frame it like that then it seems like, you know, the parliament is actually not an avenue for getting work done, but just an avenue to disrupt the government from doing the development. So uh, so now with the, what we saw happen with uh, Magwa Moitra, for instance, in the winter session, why she was explaining. Uh, so now if you say, you know, that parliament is a forum for uh, MPs to ask questions to the government, now they say, oh, but all of these questions are motivated questions so one is that structurally of course a lot of there are a lot of issues are there because of which uh, parliament has become redundant it cannot convene itself if the government doesn't want to convene a parliament session there's just nothing we can do uh, and second is that this narrative that has been created you know that is it's the government alone which knows what is of the best interest of people those who are in the opposition or those who are creating noise in parliament don't know it. They are anti-nationals. They are just coming in the way. They don't want the government to function. They don't want development to happen. Because of this narrative that has been created is why people have started feeling that we basically we can do without them. That's why it's become redundant.
1: Yeah, and this also makes me think of the language which has changed. There's a lot of old parliament footage that is uh, circulating on the internet where we can see, uh, you know, old M- MPs. Talking in certain ways that we no longer see. What can we as concerned citizens do for this? Where do we stand? I think it's very important first
0: to us, uh, first for us to realize the importance of parliament and our democracy. Because it is only if if we were to start thinking and uh, accepting that parliament is, you know, a, a disruptive institution, then it will end up not playing any role. So one is for us to start looking at parliament in a different light. And second is that there are; it is possible to bring some concrete reforms, some changes in the way parliament is being, parliament sessions are being conducted. And these are not reforms which I am just bringing out of thin air. There have been several experts. A lot of these debates, for instance, happened in the Constituent Assembly as well. So, for instance, there has been a suggestion which has come from several quarters that parliament should uh, there should be a minimum number of sittings of parliament in a year that should be laid down in the Constitution. Uh, There have also been uh, uh, suggestions for reforms which have been made. For instance, the calendar of a particular year of parliament should be set in advance so that for reasons like assembly elections or something else that the government is busy with, the government is not able to uh, change around the sessions from that. There have also been uh, suggestions which have been made to Uh, distribute the agenda setting power between the government and the opposition. So what we see right now is that the opposition can demand as much as it wants for the government to do debate on a particular issue. But if the government is not willing to do it, the debate will not happen. And then the only thing left for the opposition to do is to protest and to disrupt. So what has been suggested is, and this is a suggestion that has also come from the National Commission to review the working of the constitution, which was set up by the Vajpayee government in the year nine. 2000 I think Uh, so that also says and this is a a practice that has been followed in other democracies as well which is a practice of uh, setting opposition days so one day in a week which is for the opposition to set the agenda so if you distribute agenda setting powers between the government and the opposition neither side will have an excuse to protest for proper deliberation on bills it's very important that uh, we mandatorily send bills to standing committees right now uh, very few bills are being sent to standing committees. Uh, if a bill is not sent to standing committees, which uh, it, it means that proposed scrutiny doesn't happen on the bill. It means that people are not able to participate in the making of that bill because the, uh, stand, standing uh, committee is the only formal uh, mechanism within parliament invite comments from people on bills. Uh, there is no other uh, formal mechanism that exists. So if a bill is not sent to standing committees, people also lose out on the opportunity to participate in lawmaking. All of these are very simple reforms which can be easily brought about as long as there is the intention to do.
1: That was all the questions I had. Thank you very much, uh, Mansi, for uh, joining the podcast. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you so much, Neha. It was a pleasure talking to you this well.